this right. Reality check, you know what I mean? Street lights, eh? Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is September 28, 2022, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Keeping It Real When Treating Pediatric Migraine Patients. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Lauren Westifer. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, Bay State. She is also the co-founder of the FoamCast and is a pulmonary embolism and implementation science researcher. Welcome back to the SGEM. Good to see you, Ken. Glad to be here. Well, seeing each other virtually because we very soon will be together once again at ASAP 2022 in San Francisco. Hey, Ken, I'm excited to see you. My kids have been asking about you uh, and when I get to see Dr. Ken, so I'm, I'm excited that that, you know, that, that gets to be soon. Well, you never know. I might bring a little gift for each one of those beautiful children you have from Canada. But we're not here to talk about your beautiful children. We're here to talk about pediatric migraine patients. So give us a case. A 15-year-old patient presents to the emergency department with a unilateral pounding headache. The headache is similar to prior migraines. They have photophobia, no vision changes, no weakness, no numbness, tingling, or neurologic deficit. They did take 400 milligrams of ibuprofen at home, no relief. The patient and their mother are asking, hey, what are the next steps? What are those going to be? And what type of medication is the patient going to get? Well, we have looked at migraine treatment a few times on the SGEM, and that includes an episode on steroids to prevent bounce back visits to the emergency department, Ketorolac for acute treatment of migraines, acupuncture for prophylaxis, and even a calcitonin gene-related peptide antagonist. Patients often present to the emergency department with migraines looking for pain relief, and there are a ton of therapeutic options that clinicians have at their disposal to address the pain. Unfortunately, there is still some poor pain control despite JACO, the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations, making pain the fifth vital sign uh, over 20 years ago. And they did that to raise awareness of illegal analgesia or poor pain control, not enough analgesia in the ED. Well, despite the limitation of having a subjective measure as a vital sign, the problem of oligoanalgesia, which is poor pain management, persists. And some groups of patients are at greater risk than others. People like the elderly, women, mentally ill, and certain ethnic groups and insurance status. Children are also one group that's less likely to receive adequate analgesia. And it's, it's not well documented whether gaps in pain assessment and treatment exist in conditions that may not necessarily warrant opioids or opioids aren't indicated. And migraines are one of those where opioids aren't typically indicated. It's hypothesized that race, ethnicity, and language, or sort of these real variables, could also be independently associated with pain control. So what's the clinical question? Is there an association between patient demographics, specifically race, ethnicity, and language, and pain management among pediatric emergency department patients presenting with migraines? And what reference do you have, Lauren? This is Hartford at all disparities in the emergency department management of pediatric migraine by race, ethnicity, and language preference, academic emergency medicine, September 2022. All right, let's run through the PICO. What was the population? 
So they recruited or enrolled all patients treated in a single pediatric emergency department with at least one migraine-relevant medication using an ED migraine pathway. And so basically, they rolled out this ED migraine pathway, uh, and that was October 14, 2016. And they looked back at all patients from that point to February 28, 2020. And they were pretty inclusive. They just excluded people that had repeat encounters. How about the intervention? So this was intravenous or IV medications, plus or minus oral uh, or PO medications or intranasal medications. And what were they comparing it to? Those patients that got only oral or intranasal medications, i.e. no intravenous medications. All right, let's run through the outcomes. What was their primary outcome of interest? The treatment group assignment according to the race, ethnicity, and language preference categories, those real categories. And the secondary outcomes. Uh, these were things like pain intensity scores, and they used, uh, those were measured on age-appropriate scale. So for the little kids, the FACES scale, or a 0 to 10 pain scale for the more adult-like uh, or older kids. They also looked at ED length of stay, ED charges, which uh, are from billing data. Well, this is an SGEM <sighs> hot off the press episode, which means we have the lead author on the show. Dr. Emily Hartford is an assistant professor in pediatric emergency medicine at the University of Washington and Seattle Children's Hospital. She works to improve equity for patients of diverse backgrounds in the ED, as well as in global partnerships to improve pediatric emergency education. Welcome to the SGEM, Emily. Thank you so much. Good to be here. Your project was part of a quality improvement project that involved a migraine protocol. So y'all started sort of with this protocol uh, rollout. And can you just take us briefly through that protocol? Because I think people manage migraines a lot of different ways, depending on where you're at. Sure. Yeah. So we have a lot of clinical pathways at Seattle Children's that are developed by multidisciplinary teams and reviewing the best available evidence. So I was part of that team back in 2015, and this rolled out 2016. And was, we did it sort of in partnership between myself, uh, neurology, pharmacy, and nursing members of the team. And so basically, when a patient first presents to the ED, we try to determine the severity of their headache. So if it's very severe, meaning they have a pain score greater than seven, that we designate as severe. If they've taken anything for it at home, so as you may have experienced, a lot of times headaches in little kids are pretty scary for families. And so they just kind of come straight to the emergency department and they haven't necessarily tried anything at home. So that's another question. And then are they vomiting or are they able to you know, tolerate PO and, and hydrate and take oral medication? So those are kind of the first set of questions we answer together in the you know, original assessment of the patient. And that's to know whether we can try oral and intranasal medications or whether we're going straight to IV sort of combined therapy. If we're going to combined IV therapy, then we kind of do it all at once. And that's based largely on the American Academy of Neurology guidelines, as well as the um, British NICE guidelines. Um, so we do intranasal triptan, sumatriptan, and we do um, an IV with normal saline bolus, compazine, Benadryl, and Ketorolac all together. Um, and that's the IV bundle, IV and intranasal bundle. If they haven't really tried anything at home and or it's not a very severe headache and they're tolerating PO, then we just do oral medications. So we do ibuprofen, we start oral rehydration, 
we have a, on the pathway also to consider caffeine because there's just even less evidence for caffeine. And But for some people who use caffeine regularly or for older kids, um, teenagers, it might make sense. So that's an option for clinicians. Um, and then they wait and see if it gets better. If it gets better with the oral route, then we have a discharge bundle, which includes education, follow-up. And if the if they did get sumatriptan, we prescribe that for home. If they don't get better with the oral medications, then we bump them over to the IV medication. So then they end up getting that full IV bundle and then they get reassessed. If they still don't get better, we have a next step of more fluids, more normal saline and magnesium sulfate by IV. If they still don't get better, then we consider valproic acid. And then finally, um, we get neurology involved if they're still not getting better at that point. And all along the steps of the pathway are sort of these little caution triangles, which remind people to consider their differential diagnosis. You know, if a migraine's not getting better, go back through, could there be other causes of primary headache? Could it be a secondary headache? Could, you know, is imaging indicated that sort of thing as you're going along? But that is basically how we treat migraine according to the pathway. Well, we'll put a PDF copy of the protocol and a link to the full document in the show notes. But I did want to point out one thing. I like that the protocol includes the evidence used to inform the management. And I noticed that opioids were not in the protocol. So what evidence do you have to support that decision? Yeah, there's really no evidence that opioids help migraine in general, but especially in kids. And we we do know there's evidence that they could harm patients in the long run. Um, and so that's why they're not part of the protocol. And, you know, according to all those guidelines, I mentioned the NICE guidelines, the American Academy of Neurology guidelines, there's no opioids anywhere there for the treatment of pediatric migraine. So we, we left it out of the pathway. And we also specifically caution against the use of opioids because we believe they could be harmful and not help. Thanks for taking us through this protocol. I think it's helpful because when y'all looked at this, everyone theoretically was using that protocol. And so you would imagine people would be going through those stepwise fashion, but it's nice to see in there at what point do they get escalated? And it does seem to be off the subjective measure of pain or how effective things are. Um, so, uh, you know, thinking through that, that might be important here. So um, now would you mind giving the conclusions uh, to your study from the abstract? Yeah. So in this retrospective analysis of pediatric migraine patients, we found that race, ethnicity, and also the language for care were significantly associated with the odds of receiving intravenous therapies compared to oral or intranasal treatments. Great. And now we're going to go through a quality checklist for observational studies. But in an effort to get these SGEM hop authors more involved, please feel free to jump in and make a comment on our checklist. So Lauren, you ready to go and potentially be interrupted? Oh yeah. Okay. All right. So the first question is, hey, did the study address a clearly focused issue? It sure did. Do you think the authors used an appropriate method to answer the question they were asking? Yes. Did they recruit the cohort in an acceptable way? Yep. Okay, let's talk about bias. Was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? Yeah, I think measuring intravenous receipt um, and race and ethnicity and all those things, those all seemed uh, accurately measured. And how about accurately measuring the outcome to minimize bias? Yes. And have the authors identified all important confounding factors? This one's always hard, so I'm going to say unsure. And I can jump in here. We figured that 
there may be confounding by socioeconomic status that may affect a family's access to care or their likelihood of having a primary care doctor, for example, or having good follow-up or health literacy or education. We didn't have a very specific way of measuring their socioeconomic status. So we had to just use insurance type of public or private as a proxy. So it's an imperfect proxy measure. All right, back to the list. Number seven, was the follow-up of subjects complete enough? Yes. How precise do you think the results are, Lauren? They're pretty precise and they're all sort of in the same direction. Some of the confidence intervals were a little bit wide. And do you believe the results? I do. Can the results be applied to your local population? Yeah, you know, I I think they can. We have a pretty diverse population where I work, and I I think that these could be applied to our population. Yeah, so I think mine would be unsure because up in my rural area, we don't have as much ethnic diversity and race diversity where I practice, so it may not apply to my local population. Unfortunately, yes, they do, Ken. It it sort of seems that everywhere we look, we see uh, these disparities in medicine these days. And from a conflict of interest standpoint, was there some big organization giving Emily a whole bunch of money that could potentially influence her? She probably wishes, but no. (laughs) Emily, can you confirm that you were not paid out for this research? Definitely not. Let's get to the results section. They included just over 800 pediatric ED patients with migraines in the study, and the median age was almost 15 years, and two-thirds were female. There were 51% non-Hispanic whites, about a quarter were Hispanic, just under 10% were Black or identified as African American, and less than 5% were Asian. Now, of those 800-plus patients, about two-thirds received intravenous medications. So that means one third wouldn't. So key result, Lauren. Is that there were differences in the treatment of pain, specifically the receipt of an IV and intravenous medications that were associated with race, ethnicity, and language of care in these pediatric emergency department migraine patients. Yeah. And I don't think people should be surprised by that association given the um, literature in this area. But let's focus in on that primary outcome. This was the treatment group assignment according to real categories. What did they find? So in this logistic regression, basically they were looking at the odds of getting that IV by race and ethnicity. And what they found here is that the odds of getting that IV was higher. The adjusted to odd ratio here was 1.38 and the 95% confidence interval was all above sort of one for patients who were identified as non-Hispanic white. And the adjusted odds ratio sort of conversely was lower, i.e. they were less they less odds of getting sort of the IV if they were Black or African-American or identified as Hispanic. Um, and those were 0.57 and 0.62 for those adjusted odds ratios. And the 95% confidence interval all was below one for those. Yeah, the adjusted odds ratio of receiving IV medications was 1.4 in those who spoke English compared to 0.7 in those who spoke a language other than English. So the preferred language of the interaction was also associated with the odds of receiving IV medication. And then they had a a number of secondary outcomes. Do you want to go through those with me? 
Sure. The change in pain intensity scores over time, uh, they were similar between oral only treatment and the IV treatment groups. Uh, maybe there was you know, somewhat greater improvement uh, in the IV treatment group. Yeah. And then they looked at median length of stay, which was just over, well, almost three and a half hours in the PO group. And no surprise, the IV plus or minus PO group had about two hours longer. Now, the median difference was actually 1.8 hours. But when they looked into it, there wasn't any statistical significant difference in this metric based on the real criteria. And the median charges were just over $1,000 for the PO-only group and significantly higher, just over 3000 so almost three times as high for the intravenous uh, group, the group that got an IV and IV meds. And they assessed charges for the IV group only because the PO and intranasal charges, they're likely based on static, uh, the CPT billing codes, and there were there was little variability uh, there, and there were no reported statistical differences there. And I can jump in real quick here. I was just going to say for our secondary outcomes, you know, we looked at pain overall. Everybody got better, essentially, although it did look like the IV group got a little better. But when we tried to look at these secondary outcomes, especially length of stay and charges, according to race, ethnicity, and language groups, our sample size just got very, very small. So it was really hard. You know, we, we can't report any differences. But I can say that with the numbers we were looking at, you know, we were unlikely to, to just demonstrate any differences if they were there. All right, it's time to talk a little nerdy. And so we're going to ask Emily five nerdy questions and ask her to respond to each of them. I'm going to start off with the first nerdy question, and that's about the sample size and racial groups. In this study, the majority, just slightly, 51% of the patients self-identified as non-Hispanic whites, with less than 5% identifying as Asian, two or more races was again around 5%, or Black, African American was 8.3%. So how confident in these comparisons and associations should we be, which with such small racial groups? Yeah, so our um, percentage of patients who are from different backgrounds, race, ethnicity, backgrounds, and language groups were small, but this represents what we, you know, every patient that we took care of with migraines in the ED over this time frame, and it reflects what actually happened. So, you know, the measurements of uncertainty, like the confidence interval, they reflect what may have happened, what it, under the same data generating process, and what could predict future patterns if there weren't disparities. So I think, you know, even though these are small sample groups, it was enough for us to see that that there were significant differences. My next question for you is on the selection of covariates. Every time you adjust for something or generate one of these models, we always ask, what went into it? And is it reasonable? Are there things that I wish they'd put in there? And in your models, covariates included the race and ethnicity groups, language type, insurance type, and that was public or private. And typically we adjust for things based on literature or theory. So just asking here, why were these the things that you included? And are there things that you wish if you had access uh, to any data point that you wanted to, what would you have liked to put in here uh, that you uh, couldn't or were unable to? So yeah, a few things. I think definitely the insurance type as a proxy for, for SES is not perfect. And so um, we don't know how well patients could access a primary care provider 
and what may have affected sort of the severity of their headache or what they had tried previously by the time they presented to the emergency department. So I think if I could have adjusted for anything, I would have loved to adjust for, you know, patients having good access to primary care, good access to health literacy and education, um, sort of knowing what to do about a headache before they ever show up to the emergency department. I think that that probably would have been nice to control for. But we instead of having all of that depth of knowledge, we had to just say, you know, public or private insurance type. So I think, you know, that's just a limitation. I think that's really the main thing in terms of other covariates it would have been nice to control for. Yeah, sometimes you just don't have the granularity in the data to be able to explore those areas. The third nerdy point was about patient-oriented outcomes. Your outcomes included IV or PO and intranasal, pain intensity, length of stay, and charges. Did you collect any data on patient preferences or satisfaction with treatment? No, we didn't. Not for this pathway and for this study. It would be really interesting to compare sort of how, how people felt when they were leaving or how they liked the treatment. We um, we do have a survey that we ask families to fill out. You know, they get phone calls from the hospital after their visit. And even during this di- this time frame, we didn't have access to that data for reasons I won't bore you with. But even then, the, the percentage of people who who respond is really low. So it's hard. It's a hard question to answer, but it, an interesting one. Unfortunately, we weren't able to with this study. Well, we're always talking about, you know, the three pillars of evidence-based medicine. You've got the literature, which informs our care, and you have our clinical judgment, and you've got a protocol that can lead you along with some optional stuff. Uh, but then you have the patient's values and preferences. So it's always nice if we can capture some of those patient's values and preferences. And in this case, how how happy or satisfied were they with the protocol? Uh, next next up on my list, I have a generalizability. Every study we look and ask, is it generalizable in my population or to others as well? In this study, it looked at those that came uh, to a single freestanding sort of academic pediatric hospital ED in the U.S. So like sort of the pinnacle of pediatric emergency care. And so, you know, result, looking at the results, the, maybe the demographics are a little bit different than they would be in other geographic locations, like where Ken is or where I am. And practices may vary by pattern as well. So community uh, not affiliated with the children's hospital versus sort of the children's hospital emergency department. Um, and, and we know that sometimes practice patterns vary there. And then in addition, you know, there was a protocol in place. So, so this is almost a best case scenario because there was a pathway laid out of this is how you treat things that might minimize some of that variability. So what do you think uh, with regards to the generalizability in this study? Yeah, I think it's unfortunate that we see, you know, the effects of structural racism and bias in so many ways in medicine. And it's been very well established in the U.S., you know, over the past 20 to 30 years. And we have a lot of recent evidence about it um, in pediatric emergency medicine. So this is just another example. And, and I feel like everywhere we look, we find it. And so while the results of this specific study, you know, may not be generalizable because people may not have a pathway or their racial and ethnic makeup of their patients might be different, I think it really contributes to an alarming pattern and a real call to improve this Um and I, it's hard to speak for, you know, different communities outside what I'm familiar with and in the U.S., but I can say with certainty, you know, the literature shows us that we have grave disparities in how we treat patients in emergency medicine, 
based on their race, ethnicity, and their language preference, and probably other factors as well. And so all we can do is keep working hard to improve that. Well, I think it's similar to gender inequity in the house of medicine. Everywhere we look, and when we look, we tend to find. So I think that that would probably be similar with regards to these real criteria, race, ethnic, and language differences, that if you haven't measured it, you probably won't find it. But if you look for it, you probably will find it. Would you agree with that, Emily? Yeah, it seems to be the pattern for sure. All right, let's go to number five, our last one. And this is about collinearity. Language type and race ethnicity were not included in the same regression models because they were strongly dependent. This is an example of collinearity or a situation where two or more predictor variables are closely related to one another. Yeah, so for our models, you know, for example, our, our biggest patient population who speaks a language other than English is Spanish speaking. So most of those patients also identify as Hispanic. And so if we're trying to look at differences in race, ethnicity, and language at the same time, those two track, you know, perfectly together. And so that's why we separated out um, a race, ethnicity background, which patients reported, and language, completely separate models. Makes sense. Is there anything else that you want to highlight or expand upon from this important paper? Yeah, a couple things. I think, first of all, sort of what we already touched on, which is we have to measure these things in order to improve. And of course, the ultimate goal is not just measuring them, but having um, something to improve from and work on. I think the other thing is when we are measuring these, um, it's interesting to, to think about how we measure them. And so for this study, we looked at all of these different race ethnic groups and language groups uh, compared to the overall mean of what we were doing in the emergency department. So we made a very specific decision not to compare the different racial and ethnic groups to one another or to one particular group, for example, non-Hispanic white, which has been done sort of historically and can be done because we didn't want to assume that the non-Hispanic white patients were getting the best standard of care. People have called this centering whiteness. And so rather than doing that, we said, what is the overall mean of what's happening for patients in our emergency department? And then how does that differ based on your race, race or ethnicity or based on your language preference? Because we know there's no biological difference in patients of different backgrounds, race, ethnicity backgrounds, or language backgrounds. And so there shouldn't really be any difference in how they're treated in the emergency department for this for this diagnosis or any diagnosis. So I just think it's, a, it's how we decided to measure it, but it's kind of an interesting um, conversation on just how we look at these inequities and, and how we work towards improving them. All right, that's enough nerdy talk. We've got to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. Ken, I, I agree with the author's conclusions here is that there does appear to be a disparity based on race, ethnicity, and language of care with regards to likelihood of receiving uh, IV and IV medications in the, this pediatric emergency department migraine patient. So would that be your SGEM bottom line then? Yeah, non-Hispanic, white, English-speaking pediatric patients presenting to the ED are more likely to receive IV medication to treat their migraine headache compared to other race and ethnicities and non-English-speaking patients, acknowledging that these were mostly Hispanic or uh, Spanish-speaking patients. Well, for the case resolution, since we have an expert like Emily here who probably and most likely sees way more pediatric migraine patients than we do... Emily, how would you resolve the case that Lauren presented at the beginning of this? 
Yeah, so back to the 15-year-old who's taken ibuprofen at home and appears to very clearly have another one of his or her migraine headaches. I think that, you know, I, I think our pathway works well based on our assessment and we want to continue using it. We actually are planning to insert sort of an equity check step near the beginning where when you're making that decision between IV or oral medications, you just stop and pause and think about your own biases so that you can try to overcome them and, you know, and, and follow the best available evidence for the patient. So for this patient, I don't believe we have her, her pain intensity, but let's just say it's a very intense headache and she's already tried ibuprofen. So I probably would offer the IV treatments. I always like migraine patients. I always like to ask them what's worked in the past for them, you know, cause they sometimes coming, they come in knowing what's going to work. Um, with a very bad migraine. So I probably would have a conversation with them, you know, given you've already tried and said, we probably would go straight to our IV combination. Does that sound good to you? Have you used triptans? Are you up for trying a triptan? I'd of course make sure she didn't have any contraindications to that and probably would recommend proceeding with the the sumatriptan and the IV combination medications. Um, And then, you know, going back to check in an hour or so later and see how, um, how it worked. I, I looking at this, Ken, I'm just going to pop in here. I think it's interesting because reading this, I was also like, I probably need to check myself with the non-Hispanic white patients too, because it may not be that we are just withholding IVs from some people, but maybe we are not, we're skipping that first step of the oral medications. And as someone who is involved in de-implementation of low value care, I reading it, I sort of also thought about that and, and thinking about how are parents or uh, caregivers advocating and what discussions are we having there? So looking at both approaches, I think it's great that y'all are inserting sort of that step there and, and thinking about how I might apply in my clinical practice. I might go both ways. You're absolutely right, Lauren. And there's you know other studies that have started to show, I think in our um, discussion, we talk a little about this in the paper, but there's kind of a pattern of non-Hispanic white patients sometimes getting things that don't follow our standard of care. For example, chest x-rays for bronchiolitis where it's not indicated or head CTs for minor head trauma where it's not indicated. So you're exactly right. We have to sort of check our bias in both directions. So this would be like taking a real pause at the start of the protocol. Yep. I see what you did there, Ken. Yeah. You see what I did there? (laughs) So taking a real pause at the start of implementing this pain pathway for migraine treatment is really interesting. And it's about finding that Goldilocks zone. So I'm really happy, Lauren, that you brought that up because what we're looking for is the right care, not too much, which can be a problem, not too little, which can also be a problem. We want to find the right care to give everyone. All right, so it's now time to talk about how are you going to take this study, Lauren, and clinically apply it? So we should be aware that there can be some of these real differences uh, in associations predicting which pediatric patients presenting to the ED with things like migraines uh, will receive IV medications. So I'm going to apply this uh, in my shifts and just check my biases. Same thing that I've done with other sort of things that show disparities, whether it's pulse oximetry or the temporal thermometers. With regards to racial disparities and pulse oximetry, temperature through like the infrared sensors, same sort of thing. And just pause. Do I think that this is real? How are my biases or how are the system's biases doing this? And then also discuss with the patient, figure out what's the best thing for them. And I'm going to head back to Emily because you're the expert. I want to learn from you. I want to listen to what you would tell the patient or their caregiver with regards to how you're going to manage their headache. 
I'd say, I, I'm so sorry you're in so much pain and you have to be here in the emergency department today. From what I can tell in talking to you and your exam, this seems to be consistent with your migraine headache that you've had before. And um, you've done the right thing in trying ibuprofen at home. I wonder if you guys would want to, have you tried the IV medications before? Do you think that's kind of the next best step? It might be the best way to sort of get rid of this as quickly as possible. Um, how does that sound to you? And I'd probably wait for them to respond and then just, uh, you know, remind them if they haven't had them or tell them if they haven't had them before that what all that entails, that it's going to make you sleepy. It's, you know, going to probably make you sleep for a little while. It's going to treat nausea if you have any nausea. Um, we're going to just let you rest and and receive all those medications, some fluid, and then we're going to come back and see if it worked. And if it didn't, we'll have other medications we can try. Sounds like a little shared decision making. Love it. Love it. All right, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. Last week's winner was Riker Kyle from Wyoming. They knew that the Chinese hamster ovary cells were used to produce tenecteplase. All right, Lauren, what's the question you have this week? This week's Keener Contest question is, what is the fastest growing racial ethnic group in the U.S. over the last 20 years? And if you know the answer, then just drop me an email, thesgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. All right. Now this is a SGEM hop episode. So it is your term, SGEMers. What do you think of these racial, ethnic, and language of care issues, these real issues in the ED with pediatric pain management? What questions do you have for the author? And tweet your comments using the hashtag SGEMHOP or post your feedback on the SGEM blog. We are going to take the best social media feedback, all the great questions and comments, and we will publish those in Academic Emergency Medicine. Yeah, and just to reinforce that, please use that hashtag SGEMHOP. We get about two to three million Twitter impressions for the week using that hashtag for these SGEMHOP episodes, but there are so many that we don't capture, and we want to be able to find that best feedback and comments. And so please use that hashtag SGEMHOP. Thank you, Emily, for coming on the SGEM and talking about your hot off the press publication. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great to be here. And thanks, Lauren, for another great episode. Can't wait to see you in San Francisco, ASAP 22. Same, same, Kim. Looking forward to seeing you. All right. And to finish the show, Emily, can you give the SGEM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next week.